The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. A new twist in Elon Musk's Twitter drama. The company says he will now not be joining the board. Shares are down big. Get the coffee ready. It's a short but busy trading week with a basket of big earnings and data all on tap, including what could be a bombshell inflation number getting grim in China as another big city begins to lock down. This is some Shanghai residents are struggling to get food. They are getting angry. We are live on the ground with more. Those lockdowns sending oil down. This is super tanker still filled with Russian oil products are heading for America even weeks after the ban. We'll tell you why. And your morning RBI on why a recession may not be just around the corner. A little economic news we can all use on this Monday, April 11th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and as always, welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Good Monday morning, and a big congratulations to Scotty Scheffler for winning the Masters Golf Tournament, his first major championship. He's only 25, by the way, originally from New Jersey. He is currently ranked number one in the world, and he finished the Masters at 10 under. And going home more than two million bucks richer. Congratulations to Ridgewood, New Jersey's own Scotty Sheffield. All right, let's get right now to your Monday money. And well, while the golf was good, the futures market not looking quite as nice, especially for technology stocks once again. NASDAQ futures, they are down more than 1%. In fact, they are down more on a nominal basis than the Dow futures. So it could be a rough day. For big tech, although, again, it is early and we've got a ways to go. Despite April being traditionally one of the better months of the year for the equity markets, but a pretty rough start. NASDAQ is down 3.5% so far this month. The Dow is the only major index higher in April, and it's higher by one-tenth of 1%. Now, in the bond market, the yield curve inversion is no more, at least for now. Ten-year yields are back above shorter terms, and interest rates, they are soaring. The 10 years at 2.75%. It appears that the Fed's massive balance sheet unwinding may be taking a much larger toll on the bond market than many originally expected, and we are seeing interest rates spike higher. In the oil market, crude is lower. China's COVID lockdowns hitting global oil demand, especially with jet fuel use. We'll show you more on what we're talking about there in a couple of minutes. And in crypto, Bitcoin and Ether are both down as well. Now, they are trading in tandem today. But there has been a rather interesting divergence in the past month. Ether up 21%. Bitcoin only up about 2%. So Ethereum kind of going in one way and Bitcoin kind of staying put. Something to watch down the road. All right, let's go now around the world. Plenty of red overnight in Asia. Stocks in China and Hong Kong leading losses there. All follows new data showing that Chinese inflation surged in March. This even as tens of millions of Chinese are suffering through harsh and seemingly ineffective COVID lockdowns. Kind of a similar story in trading in Europe. Rosanna Lockwood is in our London newsroom with a look 
at the trade around the world. Rosanna, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, inheriting that weak lead from Asia and doing our own thing with it here in Europe today. Feeling pretty negative, pretty sensitive across many of the major bourses, heavily in the red. Just the Cat Cajant in Paris in the green. I'll come back to that, but just a bit of focus here first on the FTSE 100, down by around a half a percent or so. Miners focus, of course. The FTSE's been holding up quite well comparatively, but not today. The DAX in Germany down seven-tenths of a percent. The Cat Cajant, let's focus on France, shall we? Up just under half a percent. Moving quite around quite a lot in the session today. At one point back down on the flat line, now bouncing back up. Let's give you a look at the euro dollar because it's all about the French presidential elections. We've had the first round runoff. You've got Marine Le Pen, that right candidate, and Macron, the incumbent, leading the way into the April 24th runoff. The euro dollar, it's not really finding bullish sentiment, but there is strength in the euro. It's up around a quarter of a percent against the greenback. And we're watching this trade closely as we head into that April 24th final round. And we have circled that calendar in a big red marker. Thank you very much, Rosanna Lockwood in London. All right, let's get back down to this morning's top corporate story and the latest twist in Elon Musk's Twitter saga as the world's richest man decides not to take a seat on the company's board, even after buying nearly 10% of Twitter. Bertha Coombs is here now with more on the very latest twist. And I'm not going to say it's getting weird out there, Bertha, but it sure is interesting. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the old uh, Emily Latilla on Saturday Night Live. Never mind. Musk officially abandoning <laughs> his plans to join the board over the weekend. Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal announcing the decision late last night, saying Musk informed Twitter Saturday morning that he would not be taking the seat. Agarwal adding that Musk's appointment would have started on Saturday, contingent on a background check and formal acceptance. The Twitter CEO did not say whether Musk gave any specific reasons for changing his mind about the board seat, but says that the Tesla CEO remains the largest shareholder of Twitter and the company will remain open to his input. Now, this latest development comes less than a week after Musk and Twitter revealed that he would put joining the board after having disclosed that he now owns more than 9% in the company. A financial filing from Twitter specified that as long as Musk served on its board, he would not be able to own any more than 14.9%. So perhaps that was the reason, but he wouldn't be able to take a stake bigger than that in the company's stock. He could, in theory, increase his stake now beyond that limit. Musk was busy on the platform throughout the weekend without revealing his decision to forego the seat, posting a number of ideas on how to transform the social media company and its product. Brian, that including letting Twitter Blue subscribers pay with Dogecoin and keeping Twitter Blue free of advertisements. And it seems since the news broke on his board decision, he's since deleted those tweets because Elon Musk, if you wait a minute, you'll miss it. Yeah. And and talking about converting Twitter's headquarters into a homeless shelter and kind of going back and forth (laughs) with Jeff Bezos on Twitter about it. And there's a lot of speculation to your point, Bertha, that maybe he doesn't want the seat because he wants to buy more. The market not acting like that shares down 5%. But that if that is the Mm -hmm. strategy, then the Twitter bulls should be happy, I would imagine. I would think, although, you know, also wonder for him, he he likes to tangle with the SEC, but he certainly probably doesn't want to be doing it on two fronts. 
or five yeah, or however many fronts he's got going on right CEO. now. With the, I know spate exactly a lot going on there. The, 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 by the way, the man sleeps less than we do, Bertha Coombs, and I'm not sure that's a compliment. Bertha, thank yeah. you. See you in a few minutes. All right, let's get back now to the markets. A shortened trading week due to Good Friday's holiday on Friday, remember, but still a very busy one. Everyone is going to be watching really just a couple of things. Some huge inflation data, which really will be the first that shows the impact of the price spikes after Putin began his war. And those numbers, by the way, could be some of the worst inflation headlines we have ever seen. And big banks kicking off earnings and what also may be one of the most, if not the most, important earnings quarters in years Let's tie it all together and bring in Lee Baker, owner and president of Apex Financial. Uh, Lee, if you know where things are headed, you're a better man than I am because the crystal ball has gotten very cloudy, although it does seem likely that, and I hope I'm not you know, doing some TV hyperbole thing at 5.10 in the morning, those inflation numbers could be terrible. Hey, you know, Brian, I, I've got a crystal ball, actually. Unfortunately, it's made out of onyx. So when I look at it, I just see my own reflection. <laughs> uh, but the uh, the expectation is eight, eight and a half percent. And that's a really, really big number. Uh, and, and I don't think uh, it, it's going to take an actual crystal ball for us to, uh, to to be on the same page with something in that range. That's a really big number. Yeah, it could be. And you wonder, has the market, though, already reacted to it? You know, when that and I the bond market has been moving so aggressively, Lee, and the stock market's been moving as well, that you wonder, however bad this or the other numbers coming out in the near term may be, has the market already made the call for it? I think that's the question. And so in in my opinion, the answer to that question is, yes, the market's already made that move for it. I think we're going to have to see something that is drastically different from those numbers. Uh, with what's going on, Russia and Ukraine, there's the expectation that that would add some additional weight. You know, we've been hearing little bits and pieces over the course of the last month about what it might do to grain supplies because of what Russia and Ukraine traditionally uh, add to the global markets from that perspective. Uh, what's been going on with oil, uh, Europe's dependency on Russia for oil. So all those ingredients, ingredients, excuse me, come into play. So in my opinion, I think it's already baked into uh, what the market is expecting. Yeah, you wonder if that Fed balance sheet unwind, though, was not. I mean, that seems to be what's really moving along with the inflation data. But that unwind moving the bond market, Lee, and even some of the smartest people that I'm reading in fixed income over the weekend are kind of taken aback by this violent move in the bond market. But for your clients who probably are not, you know, day trading bonds or not Bill Gross, they are wondering how this ultimately affects the macro stock market. And so what are you telling them? Well, we've been doing some things with our clients that says, hey, listen, we've got a couple of dynamics here. Uh, We already know that we're in an inflationary environment. We already know that we're moving in or have moved into a a scenario where we're going to be having increasing uh, interest rates. So what types of things traditionally do well in that environment? Now, the one sort of caveat is what does it mean when you add into the mix the war with Russia uh, invading Ukraine, but you take a look and say, hey, what can we expect and begin to tilt client uh, portfolios to add a little bit more in the commodity space, add a little bit more in the REITs, and as we've got things coming this week, and traditionally speaking, with this sort of environment, you might look towards financials. And so uh, the earnings reports uh, coming here in the next couple of days uh, will be very interesting to watch. 
Yeah, maybe some of the most important earnings in years, and hopefully that also is not an overstatement. Lee Baker, Apex Financial, really appreciate you getting up early for us. Lee, have a great day and a great week. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Happy to be with you as always. All right, folks, we got a lot more to do here on a busy Monday. Thank you. When we come back, much more on Elon Musk's decision to abandon a board seat at Twitter, or was it entirely his call? Plus, where are all the workers? The crushing reality facing millions of small businesses across America. And later, much more on oil. Several super tankers filled with Russian oil and oil products are still heading here. But how is that possible? We'll tell you. Coming up. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Monday morning, everybody. It's just about 514 here on this Monday. And, you know, it's Monday morning. It's early. You're waking up. You're optimistic for the week. Well, maybe just go back to bed or make some more coffee, more likely, because NASDAQ futures indicating could be another tough day for big tech stocks. S&P and Dow futures are also lower as well. Dow off about 116, but really it's big tech that you've got to watch. The NASDAQ futures are down more than 1%. In fact, on a nominal basis, they are down more than the Dow. We don't see that a lot, but they're off 153 points right now. Again, it is early and things could change, but it looks like higher rates are taking their toll on big tech. What about oil? Well, it's good news if you're a driver because gasoline prices, which have already fallen about eight cents a gallon in the last week, they should fall again because oil continues its decline on the China COVID lockdowns. China, Shanghai, pretty much completely locked down. Guangzhou on the edges of a lockdown. That's a lot of oil demand. We'll show you more on jet fuel in a few minutes. Uh, That could be impacted there. WTI crude is down two and a half percent. Brent crude is just above 100 bucks. And we referenced the bond market, and you've heard a lot about this inversion of the yield curve. Well, the inversion is no longer inverted. Ten-year yields are back above those of the two-year as the Fed's balance sheet unwind is really taking its toll on fixed income. Well, if you own or run a small business, you know that two things are true. Number one, it's incredibly hard to find employees, particularly good ones. Two, if you can, you will probably have to pay them a lot more. And whatever you may think about that, including the higher pay, it is going to have a big impact on the overall economy. Because remember, most people work for small companies, not big ones. All this, by the way, happening as the House passes another $55 billion spending package meant to help restaurants and bars. Joining us now to talk about all this is John Stanford, co-executive director of the Small Business Roundtable. John, it's good to have you back on I'm sure our viewers anywhere they are right now can tell the same story. 
Pretty much every business has got a help wanted sign out in front of it and offering all kinds of perks. Is there any sign that the job market has loosened up at all? There is no sign whatsoever. We continue to see the number one thing holding back explosive small business growth is people can't find the employees to service their jobs. Some recent data that we've seen from a number of sources has shown some higher quit rates. We see people moving for slightly better benefits, slightly better pay, and small business owners are doing everything they can to hold on to their most valuable asset, and that's the people they have delivering for the customers that come to them. We all want people to make as much money as they can. Higher pay, we love it, helps families live, but it also results in inflation as well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword here. And these small companies, they don't have the pricing power to pass on some of their higher costs to the consumer that, say, a Costco, a Walmart, or a Target may. You hear from them. Is there anything they're asking for that might help? Is there anything that can be done about this, John? Yeah, we're asking for a lot of things, and a lot of them have to do with leveling the playing field for recruiting employees. When you talk to employees of small business owners, you usually find how proud they are to be at a local mom and pop or a growing startup. But there are some real discrepancies between what those companies, those big mega cap companies can offer. One of a a good example is health insurance. Regardless of how you feel about the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, the small business healthcare market remains broken. And if we can't fix that, that means small businesses can't competitively offer health benefits that most Americans are coming to expect to their employers. So in this moment where any worker with a good set of skills can shop around for jobs, we're seeing small businesses at competitive disadvantages. Now, we are willing to pay more. We've seen more small business owners preparing to pay more going into the rest of the year. But 20 percent, only 20 percent of small business owners think that they can find a worker that they need. Yeah, it's a great point on healthcare, John, because, you know, obviously we talked about healthcare vis-a-vis COVID for the better part of two plus years. But just the macro insurance environment was a problem before COVID and maybe exposing some more holes as well. Is there a reason? I mean, listen, we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff on a Monday. Inflation's out of control, healthcare costs, hard to find employees. Any reason to be optimistic? <laughs> Leave us with a little optimism for some, you know, people want to work for themselves. They maybe like working for small businesses. Maybe it is their own small business, kind of the American dream. Uh, that dream isn't going away, but there must be some reason to be optimistic. You're, you're absolutely right, and that's a great place to leave it to start a Monday morning. Entrepreneurial spirit in America remains strong. We have more business starts than ever. We have more people starting and turning to entrepreneurship of all stripes, all colors, all genders, and we will find. The good news is small businesses are growing. We will be able to afford more workers, and so the, we remain optimistic as ever. There are definitely some challenges, but... As as long as the economy continue to boom and we can open up and everyone can get back, we know that entrepreneurs will come out on top. Yeah, that desire to create a business, run your own business that has been there and it's growing and it's exciting and we'll see where it leads. John Stanford, really appreciate you coming on. Have a great day and a good week. Thank you very much. Happy Easter, by the way. All right, still on deck. The scary story from Shanghai where extreme COVID lockdowns are now leading people to wonder how they will get food, some of them also screaming out of their windows. 
Eunice Yoon is next up on that. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back. China's iron-fisted efforts to try to contain COVID continue and are getting worse. The southern city of Guangzhou, a major economic hub, now ordering classrooms to move back online and advising residents not to leave the area. This is news spreads of the struggles that residents in Shanghai are facing to just buy food with some too scared to even go to the hospital for needed medical treatments. This even as China says there is no one in the hospital for COVID. If it sounds confusing, it is. But let's try to make sense of it with Eunice Yoon, who joins us now from Beijing. And Eunice, obviously, I, you know, I know it's a sensitive issue over there, so we'll just keep it uh, top line. But the, the Chinese government, on one hand, is saying that they've had 130,000 cases, but no deaths, and I think one person who went to the hospital if those numbers are accurate, that sounds like really good news, given that people are getting through it. But on the other hand, these lockdowns, and we're seeing videos here of people screaming and crying out of their windows because they don't have any food. Um, can you square the two? Yeah. Well, it's difficult because there have been a lot of people online questioning the numbers, especially because uh, there have been several reports now out of hospitals that take care of the elderly where um, uh, orderlies have seen bodies in bags. And we don't know, um, of course, whether that means that these are definitely COVID cases, but that's kind of the, the whole story that's going on right now in terms of the numbers of deaths. But in terms of the um, people who are shouting and screaming outside their window, that um, those videos um, are plentiful online, though, of course, the government's trying to to um, take some of those those videos down. But people have been in lockdown from even before um, officially Shanghai went into lockdown. There are some people who've been there for four weeks, five weeks, um, shouting at police, saying that they haven't been able to get any food. And now uh, Guangzhou uh, residents, uh, probably no surprise to you, have already started hoarding food over there. We're seeing this not only in Guangzhou, but in other parts of the, the country. Uh, residents have been eyeing the food shortages that have uh, taken place in Shanghai. Uh, Guangzhou's 18 million residents are now in either their second or their third round of mass testing. And you mentioned how some of the schools have been shut down, Brian. Schools have been shut down. Uh, if you want to leave Guangzhou, you have to make sure you get a 48-hour a COVID test uh, before you're allowed to leave. And I, I, I mean, and we've talked a lot about the Canton Fair. That venue has now been converted or they're in the process of converting it into a quarantine center because Beijing sa- has mandated that all of the provinces uh, create at least two or three makeshift hospitals. Is there, Eunice, uh, you know, is there any, and I know with the, with the, the media over there and the government control, it's very hard to have a, a different opinion Officially, is there anybody pushing back from a high level in the media, the government saying, listen, with Omicron or whatever variant it may be over there, obviously here in the United States, we learned this winter that lockdowns probably don't work very well. We had everybody, I mean, cases soared 
everywhere in the United States. That's just that's just the data. It's an airborne virus, and, and it's it is difficult to control. Is there anybody pushing back on what the government is doing, saying, "Well, it's it's is it going to work anyway?" Is the point? Yeah, there have been some epidemiologists who have raised this in a sensitive way. But uh, by and large, officially, the um, the uh, line is still the same, that uh, China is going to stick with zero COVID, that the approach is the right one. In fact, the foreign ministry criticized the United States because the U.S. embassy said that they were going to allow some of their non-essential um, workers in Shanghai to leave the city. And also they said they warned Americans about coming to some of these hotspot areas because of what they considered arbitrary quarantine. And the foreign ministry was saying, uh, you know, this is outrageous that yeah. you would call it arbitrary and our policies work just fine. Can, quickly, could you leave the country? Not you, but could an American embassy worker leave the country if they wanted to fly home, get out? Yes, you can. But there is I mean, I'm sure with the embassy, they would have even more special ways to be able to get out. But for a regular American yeah. um, who would want to leave, you can. But the process is really, really challenging. Uh, so if you want to, for example, even travel as a regular person around Shanghai, you have to get a special permission yeah. from the government, the city government, so that you can make your trip from your hotel to the airport. So, so there are a lot yeah. of processes yeah, well, involved to try to get out. I, I know, and we've seen just the videos of people screaming out of their windows or crying and saying they have no access to food, they can't pay their bills. It's tough. One person in your little mm -hmm. cluster tests positive, which happened in the United States all winter long, and everybody's locked down. Uh, Eunice Yoon, we're thinking about you. Thanks for joining us. Eunice, wow, tough situation over there. All right, on deck. Much more on Elon Musk's decision to bail on his Twitter board seat, or did... The company bail on him. We'll talk about it next. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and good Monday morning. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Brian Sullivan. It's right around 5.30 a.m. here on the East Coast. And unfortunately, maybe you want to grab another cup of coffee because the markets are looking a little bit tough right now, particularly big tech stocks, NASDAQ futures. They're actually down more than Dow futures are. They're down over 1% right now. This interest rate spike may be hitting big tech again today, and NASDAQ futures off 142. Dow futures look relatively good, down 93, so down only one-third what big tech is. Let's hit oil. It is down as well, trading under 100 bucks. Those China COVID lockdowns we still just talked about with Yunus Yun hitting global demand, particularly jet fuel. In fact, take a look at this. This is a China airport usage index from satellite tracking firm SpaceNo. And you can see a pretty big drop off on the right side there in the last few weeks is Shanghai locked down. In other words, lots of oil building up offshore. We'll talk more about oil in just a moment. But right now, let's stick with the markets and bring in our friend John Nigerian, Market Rebellion co-founder and a CNBC contributor. John, uh, great to have you on. So much to talk about. I got to ask you about this, this Twitter situation. I mean, Musk buys it. People love it. He says he's joining the board, talks about making a homeless shelter out of the whatever, deletes those tweets. And the board last night saying they basically have reached a mutual decision not to join. What's your take? Uh, I don't think Twitter really wanted any change that the, of the sort that Mr. Musk was going to bring, Brian. Um, I love those tweets. 
the ones about, hey, if nobody's coming into the office, let's turn this thing into a homeless shelter or let's uh, get rid of the W um, <laughs> and so forth. I, I think Twitter just was not at all ready. I think it was defensive move. I'm sure you think the same for them to basically invite him onto the board um, and thereby if he was fully you know, placed on the board, he wouldn't be able to go activist, I think, for like 15 months or more. Um, he's already changed that designation from passive uh, on his uh, filings with the SEC. So I think Twitter uh, was uh, a little over uh, confident that they could calm Mr. Musk and get him to uh, just sort of be nice and play nice. I don't think he wants to play nice with a group that really doesn't really no. want to play nice either. No, I, I think that board you, um, is not going to be very friendly to the price of Twitter um, because of this move with Musk in particular. Yeah, and the statement by the CEO, which we'll talk more about with uh, reporter Alex Hearn right after you, John, was pretty corporate-ish. Do you think that Twitter was afraid of Elon Musk? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he's bigger, obviously. He's the richest man on the planet, and he's bigger than anybody on that board. And I doubt if he would be, uh, you know, very tolerant of fools. And I'm sure there are several on that board because that's what Twitter has become, just this echo chamber um, that uh, doesn't want an outside voice as strong as his. So I don't think he could be tamed. And I think that's part of why this just didn't work out, Brian. In full disclosure, though, I, I lost some money on that part because although I caught it early on the rise up, I bought some 50 calls last week as I rolled up that position. And now this morning, shares are trading down hard again. Yeah. So it's looking like those 50 calls won't be paying off for me. Well... But I'm, I'm a little confused. I'm easily confused, John, as we know. But I'm a little confused why the stock <laughs> is down. Because now that he's not joining the board, there is speculation. And again, it's all speculation that now he's free to buy more than 14.9% of the company. And so maybe he'll just buy the whole doggone thing. Again, that's just speculation of why maybe he didn't join the board. But if you believe that, maybe some do and don't and don't. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But if you believe it, wouldn't that be good for the stock? Overall, yes. But at what level? In other words, um, Elon Musk yeah, has never point. really cared all that much about possessions. So um, I think he'll be a prudent buyer. I don't think he'll just get in there and fight um, for the stock here. I think he'll say, OK, well, you guys are going to kill the stock. Maybe I'll buy it again in the sub 40 level in the 30s and so forth and Based on what the Twitter, uh, you know, fight is looking like right now, it's likely to get there as long as he's a patient yeah. buyer. I think he could pick it up a lot cheaper, Brian. John, we, we love your view on Twitter. We love having you on. Really appreciate it, John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion. Thanks, John. All right, let's thank stay you. with this news, thank by the way, and bring in Alex Hearn, UK tech editor at The Guardian. Alex, thank you also for joining us. I mean, you heard what we're saying about the board's statement. Of course, it's all lawyered up. We know that. But is there anything that we can read from it? I think so. It looks like a banal statement, sure. But there are some landmines hidden in there. You know, you don't refer in a statement to the fiduciary duty that you were trying to impose on Musk. You don't refer to the background checks that you were going to make him 
go through and you don't refer to the fact that there are distractions ahead unless you're thinking of some pretty specific things. We can take a guess at some of that, right? Uh, Musk filed his declaration of his stake a little late, late enough that it looks like he saved about $170 million on his purchase. The SEC might have some questions about that, and that might have played poorly with his fiduciary duty to Twitter's shareholders. Similarly, you know, the distractions ahead, like you say, we can take a pretty big guess as to what one of them might be. Musk is no longer tied to that 14.9% stake. And if he wants a controlling stake of Twitter, if he wants to take the whole damn thing private, he can afford to do it with hundreds of billions to spare. So, I think Twitter, I think Twitter CEO Agrawal, they know that they've got uh, a fight ahead, but I don't think that this was as as passive as corporate a move as they might feel yeah. like they're forced to make it appear. I, I would 100% agree with you, Alex. I mean, when you talk about the statement from, from the, the CEO, Parag Agrawal, it was almost like, I don't want to call it threatening to Musk, but to your point about talk about duties and this and that and the other thing, you wonder if behind the scenes they're like, okay, we'll give you the board seat, but by the way, we're going to have to investigate a lot of things in your background and your past and you and dig into some things you may choose to not want to dig into and must probably just, you know, said no thanks. Right, exactly. The the board seat was always and was openly an effort to tie Musk's hands. It looks like the top line of that, the you cannot buy more than 14.9%, was a deal he was prepared to agree to, but the as they went further, it became something that he felt would be too constraining. I think the question for Twitter and for Musk is kind of whether it was just the constraints or whether it was the disclosures. In other words, is it simply that Musk has a vision for Twitter that he feels like he can only achieve with total control rather than being one voice amongst many? Or is it actually that that Musk is a character who is ill-suited to a simple board seat on a publicly traded company? You know, is it that he needs that leeway that being sole owner, that being techno king can get you and anything less, you know, he's just not a corporate man and he can't really play in that field by the rules others set. It makes perfect sense. I mean, he's so big walking in that room, he's going to be maybe a distraction to the board. And Twitter is, I mean, as much as we all use it in the media, a kind of a small overall niche player in technology, Alex. Do you think he just fundamentally likes the company, so he bought the stock because it's down 30 bucks off its high, or do you think that he really thought or thinks still that he can change it? I think... Well, I think he certainly bought the stock because it's it's a thing he uses a lot. And as I understand it, when you have that much cash floating around, sometimes you just buy the things you like. It's it's sort of like buying a sports team, right? <laughs> He's investing in something that's a hobby for him. That said, he, he certainly wanted to change it, right? I mean, before he disclosed his stake, he was talking about changes he'd introduced, the edit button. After, he was talking about more changes. I think the question isn't whether Musk has things that he'd like to change about Twitter, Absolutely, he does. It's whether or not he's buying it as an investment or as a toy. Does he want to change Twitter to make it more fun for him to use? Or does he want to change Twitter to make it a social network with a strong return on his investment and to to build it up into a larger company? I think that split, that's the sort of thing that we're talking about when Agrawal's statement gets to fiduciary duty. You're not allowed to buy a small stake in a company as a toy. Yeah, with pocket change. For him, by the way, Alex Hearn of The Guardian. Appreciate it, Alex. Fascinating. This story will play out over time. All right, coming up, why Russian oil and oil products are still on their way to America, even weeks after Biden's ban. That's next. 
All right, welcome back. It may seem a bit hard to believe, but right now there are super tankers on the oceans filled with Russian oil and oil products and things like gasoline additives. And some of it may still be headed right here to America. Because remember, the sanctions gave a 45-day grace period for American companies to buy Russian oil, and many did. And some of that still has yet to hit our shores. Joining us now is energy market strategist Clay Siegel. Clay, it's great to have you back on. Uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, there's, are there there's still ships filled with oil and other oil-related products that are headed here? Hey, Brian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yep, that is the case. So when the Biden administration imposed this ban on Russian oil imports back on March 8th, it did give that 45-day window for trades to be unwound and for anything pre-purchased before March 8th to make its way on shore. So that deadline expires at 12.01 a.m. on April 22nd, effectively coming in on April 21st. According to energy intelligence firm Vortexa, there's three ships left that are still carrying Russian oil on the way to the United States. A couple of them should be arriving on uh, Wednesday this week. And then the very last one that we're tracking currently, it's called Vinerats, named after the Croatian city. It should be arriving to Baton Rouge, Louisiana on Sunday, April 17th, based on current yeah. information. So a few days ahead of that deadline. Okay, so I love this. And, and by the way, Sam Madani at Tanker Trackers also does a great job on this as well. And, and you and I were going back and forth over the weekend. You gave me the names. I looked up one of the ships. And one of the ships that's coming in is coming from Freeport, Bahamas to Corpus Christi, Texas. Not a Russian port, but it's kind of a game they're playing, right? Isn't it, Clay? Where a lot of these ships are leaving Russia. They're going somewhere else. They're stopping. So they're, it's harder to track. This is kind of a game they're playing. Well, it's part of normal oil trading operations to sometimes stop over in uh, in storage hubs. But I think you raise an important question here. The number of uh, cargo diversions of Russian oil has increased in recent weeks. And yeah, one of the examples is that a lot of the ships that were uh, on the way here have been rerouted. And some of them to those Caribbean oil terminals in places like the Bahamas, uh, St. Croix, St. Eustatius, the places with the great beaches. What happens next to that Russian oil in the Caribbean tanks is really important because it can't legally come here. The problem is that the ship tracking platforms, when they're loaded again, are just going to say, you know, a ship was loaded in the Bahamas and its destination is Houston or Corpus Christi. So you lose that visibility on the origin. And I think that raises the prospect, at least, of call it oil laundering, sort of like money laundering. So who's keeping up with uh, the Russian oil that's making a layover in these other countries? I believe that the technology exists yeah. to do that, but the market intelligence platforms are not really designed to track it that closely from ship to onshore tank and back. We really need government and is industry it, to get together to crack this code. Is it likely that we could still be buying Russian oil well after the ban on, on April 21st without knowing it? Yeah, it is possible. It's it's really going to be important, not only for the United States, which, remember, imported a relatively small volume of Russian oil, 500, 600,000 barrels a day before this ban is going to go into effect. But especially if there are more bans on Russian oil imports, we look especially to the EU and other yeah. countries in Europe. If they're going to do something similar, we really have to track this carefully. 
And that's when it's going to get really interesting if that does happen with oil prices. Uh, Clay Siegel, I really appreciate your view. Fascinating stuff on these ships. We're watching all three. Clay, have a great day. All right, on deck, your morning RBI offering up a clue on when one big bank says a recession may be coming. Plus, Tiffany McGee is here to lay out what you need to know in this busy trading week. And during April, we're celebrating Financial Literacy Month. There is Super Bowl champion Indomitian Sue with the changes he said need to be made for the kids. Financial literacy definitely needs to be in the school system. I wish I had it when I was growing up, and it's important for our youth to learn that at an early age because it becomes very prevalent in their life. We usually find ourselves wide-eyed open, whether it's renting a car, leasing a car, buying a car, looking for your first home or looking for your first apartment and understanding your credit's a part of those different decisions. And if you don't have that basic foundation and that knowledge, you're not gonna be able to uh, succeed in life. your morning RBI. Today, let's talk about the American economy and where this great multi-trillion dollar beast may be headed. Because as you know, there's been a lot of new talk about the rising risk of a recession. Many seem to think it's not a question of if, but when. Well, Morgan Stanley thinks they may have a good idea about that because chief economist Ellen Zentner has some pretty interesting modeling on it. Check this out from a weekend research note. Now, there's a lot going on here, but it's, it's not too complicated. All right. There's a lot of lines. But what you're looking at is this. It's a chart going back 25 years, right? So the, so the orange and blue lines are Morgan Stanley's recession probability models. And sort of that gray middle part there, the shaded areas, they are the recessions. 2001, the financial crisis right in the middle, and the very brief but brutal lockdown shock in 2020. So, of course, when we hit a recession, the probability is obviously 100% because we're there. So let's look at where we are now. Both the Morgan Stanley's different models or the far right, that little upturn in the orange, well, they are higher, but nowhere near where they were ahead of those three recessions. In fact, even though Zentner recently brought down our GDP estimates, those estimates are still for growth this year and next year, not contraction. Of course, this chart could change. It is something you're going to want to revisit from time to time because when that orange and blue lines, when they start to creep up toward that 40% level, a recession may be getting close. And that means the stock market may be at risk as well. We're going to watch so you don't have to. But that little tiny right-hand turn there in the very bottom right, that is random but interesting and maybe not a sign of a recession just around the corner. All right, so let's ask Tiffany McGee what she thinks about all this. Joining us once again, the CEO and CIO Pivotal Advisor, CNBC contributor. Uh, Tiffany, I think you'd be a... A believer in that camp that a recession, it may come eventually, but it's probably not in the short term. It's definitely not in the short term. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Um, so I'm thinking Good. back to the last time uh, the Fed um, started a tightening, right? And so, first of all, when, when the Fed minutes just came out, um, a couple, two things that were really, really interesting. So first of all, it's that potential 50 basis point uh, increase in May, which is significantly more than what we than, than what we were thinking with the 25 point increase. And then also they talked about how they were going to reduce their balance sheet. And so 
really allowing their existing bonds to mature. And so the last time this happened, they did this, was around between 2017 and 2019. But a couple things were different. First of all, the pace was $50 billion, not the $95 billion in reduction that they're talking about. And um, the reduction didn't start until a year after the first rate hike. But how stocks performed in the short term, to your, to your, to your question, they did actually well in the first year of the, of the, uh, the balance sheet reduction. So stocks took a dive about, um, about 20%, but that wasn't until after the tightening. Yeah. Well, we're looking at a longer-term chart of, of yields. I mean, Tiffany, the, the bond market really has maybe done the work of the Fed, has it not? Because while the Fed is kind of saying, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, the bond market at 275 on the 10-year, up, what, double from a year ago, whatever it is, the bond market has become the Fed, it feels like. The bond market has been working overtime lately. And so as an investor, I'm thinking, well, if that is going on, will the Fed change course? Do we really need the 50, the 50 basis point increase? Um, so, you know, listen, time is going to tell. Um, and we do have more meetings of the Fed for the, th- throughout the rest of the year. So, you know, my hope is that um, the Fed will proceed cautiously as they've been doing um, for the past two, two and a half years, as we've been talking about tapering and tightening, all of these things, they've really made it clear that they're going to really watch and see the data. So I hope that they do that in the case here, because you're absolutely right. The bond market really has been doing the job of the Fed lately. Yeah, it certainly has. Futures, NASDAQ futures, by the way, are down. I guess the idea being that, you know, big tech in particular, Tiffany, does look more vulnerable to rate shocks or balance sheet shocks or whatever you want to call them. Uh, It's not been the kind of April that many had hoped for. It's early. It hasn't. I mean, quite honestly, it hasn't been the kind of year that many have hoped for, right? I mean, look at the drastic difference, even (laughs) in volatility between this year and last year, right? Um, But but again, you know, and and especially in tech, we can look back to 2020, we can look back to 2021 and see how uh, how well tech was performing. And now in 2022, it's a drastically different situation. And I know many people are thinking and wondering, well, is this a good time to buy tech? Um, I'm always in the tech camp. uh, But for me, it's not really about painting, uh, painting industries or, uh, or, or types of companies with, with a broad brush. It really is, and, and I've said this on, on your show before, for me, it really is the year of balance sheets and business models. And so I'm really looking for those diamonds in the rough for those companies, no matter what um, industry they're in, who are really able to weather these, head, these, these major headwinds, yep. right? So, uh, of course, supply chain issues, rising costs, all of these things. Are they able to pivot and navigate and especially in this time of, 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 of major headwinds, yeah. are they able to, to increase their margins? So I'll be watching for that this earnings season. And we'll use that as a what we call a deep tease for your next appearance on those picks. Tiffany McGee, Pivotal Advisors, looking for yes. companies that can pivot. <laughs> Tiffany, thank you. Have yeah. a great day and a good week. Folks, all of you out there as well, stock futures down, oil is down. There's a lot going on. Squawk and the gang are picking up your coverage next. I'm off tomorrow. I'll see you on Wednesday. Have a great day. A lot going on. Thanks for watching CNBC. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. 
Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.